This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Denver has hired its full first full-time pedestrian planner. That's as it develops a new walkability plan. This is a milestone in an auto-dependent city, and this planner's name is David Pulsifer. And my, do you have questions for him? We asked for your questions ahead of time. Pulsifer's job done right could save lives. The state transportation department says there were 1,300 car crashes involving pedestrians in Colorado last year. 59 of them ended in a death. And David, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. On Monday, there was a serious car accident involving a pedestrian on Federal Boulevard near Regis University in North Denver. A few weeks ago, a reporter at the Denver Post was killed in a crosswalk at Spear and Downing. And we heard from a listener, Richard Shackle, who was hit and dragged by a car at an intersection in Capitol Hill last year. So I want to start with intersections themselves. Are there concrete ways, no pun intended, that they can be made safer? Absolutely. So there are things that you can do um, both to the signals themselves and then also the infrastructure around the uh, crosswalks and intersections that make them safer. You can increase the time that it takes a a pedestrian to cross, so in increasing uh, the signal timing. You can also install what's called a lead pedestrian interval, which before the light turns green for the car, you give a green or the walk symbol to the pedestrian. So it gets them out in the crosswalk before cars start to go. So it, it eliminates that right turn conflict when if a pedestrian and a car were about, about to go at the same time. So that's something you can do. You can also add um, enhanced visibility to the crosswalk markings themselves, making it uh, more intuitive to a motorist as they approach an intersection that they expect to see someone there. As opposed to a kind of fading white strip of paint. Exactly, yeah. It's uh, preferable to give a a lot more uh, visible indication to a motorist that you expect to see people there when you approach the intersection. You can also do what's called uh, curb extensions or bump outs, which puts a... It's like adding a big bulb on top of the curb, and it allows the pedestrian to look out and stand out above where normally a parked car would be. And then they can see, and it makes them more visible. They're not hiding behind the curb. And it also shortens that distance because when you put these like caps or big bulbs on the curbs themselves, it shortens the distance they have to cross. So again, makes them more visible, um, easier to see. And as you look around Denver, um, has the city adopted these and has it adopted them widely enough? Um, I, they have adopted them. Uh, we have a long way to go. And uh, obviously, with any infrastructure improvements, uh, we have to balance that throughout the city. And also, we have to balance the available resources that we have. So it's something that it's my job to make sure we implement, implement more of, and we put them in the most needful places in Denver. All right. A long way to go, you say. And uh, Denver is currently putting together a new pedestrian plan. You're seeking input on it. Yeah, that's correct. So the Denver Moves Pedestrian and Trails Plan is just kicking off. It's part of a four-plan Denver Right process, which includes uh, simultaneous plans from Blueprint Blueprint Denver, Game Plan, and Denver Moves Transit. So the Denver Moves Pedestrian and Trails uh, Plan will give us the framework in Denver for what we want Denver to look like in, in the upcoming future and big vision. What do we want for our pedestrian environment? 
And you are seeking inputs. Uh, you're, you're going to also answer questions from uh, some listeners here today. But I want to go to those figures from the Colorado Department of Transportation that there were 1,330 car crashes involving pedestrians last year. Here's the thing. 72% of them, the great majority, happened outside of an intersection. So it's one thing to transform intersections in the way that you've already discussed. But what does it say to you that so many pedestrians who are injured or killed uh, are so outside of intersections? Does that tell you that pedestrians are making iffy decisions or that cities aren't accommodating pedestrians well and they are forced then to cross in awkward places? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's a, a little bit of both, but I also I but I think it's more that we have fundamentally planned for cars as the primary mode of transportation within a city. And when you accommodate them and encourage that, you also make it easier for them to go fast. And we know that there's a direct correlation with speed and fatalities. Um, uh, A pedestrian hit going 40 miles per hour has a 90% chance of dying. If you slow that down to 20% or 20 miles per hour, um, the pedestrian has an 80% chance of living. So to me, those numbers you quoted from uh, CDOT tell me we have a speeding problem as well. We need to slow people down and we need to create a culture where we value people's lives, we value safety, and we value sensitive users of the road. Okay. When you talked about making intersections safer for pedestrians, you said that one option was to give pedestrians more time to cross. Correct. Now put yourself in the driver's seat, and you are frustrated at how long this dang light is. Finally, the light changes, and you've got it, (laughs) right? Because now you're late. Absolutely. Uh, that speaks to increasing speeds, which then makes pedestrians less safe. Isn't there a fundamental tension here uh, that you have to figure out? I I think so. And I think I'm I'm really glad we're having this conversation because I think we do need to talk about our speeds. And, you know, it's seeming like it's almost like a private behavior, like, well, if I speed, no one else is going to know, you know? And um, I think we do need to to have this conversation about why am I speeding? Why am I going above what is actually safe and recommended on the roads? And there are actually consequences to speeding, not just, you know, getting there in uh, the time that I think I should get there, but you know, you're on, we're on a shared resource and um, you know, everyone has a right to use the road and everyone has a right to, to be safe and to be comfortable. You're asking drivers to ask themselves a question. Why am I speeding? What is, what is, do I have a sense of entitlement that I'm in a vehicle? Is that what you're saying? I think it's worth having the conversation. Um, given that, you know, Denver is in, um, experiencing incredible growth and it's promising this idea and this vision to people that you know, Colorado is a healthy place to live. You can get where you want to go. And when people get here, they're realizing that, you know, maybe there's some implications to if I drive my car, it's, uh, you know, taking me a little bit longer. And, you know, if I ride my bike or walk, maybe the environment isn't exactly what I expected it to be. I think we need to have this conversation on what are we, what kind of Denver are we trying to create? What are we promising? What do we want Denver to actually be like? I want to focus on Colfax for just a moment. There's a section of Colfax Avenue with a span, I believe, of seven intersections that have zero marked crosswalks. Have you seen that stretch yet? 
Um, <clears throat> do you know the specific stretch? I I think it's roughly in like the Bluebird Theater District. Oh, okay, sure. Um, I mean, I know that they actually just did in that district some some of the artistic crosswalk treatments. I would think one of the neighborhood organizations uh, did some some things there to make um, them more visible in make, some regards. Sure, to make them more visible, and also as a part of a community place making to sort of brand the community and empower the community as well. So uh, I I know they've done some things there, but I don't know specifically each individual intersection and what's been done. Um, what what's been done there with respects to crosswalks? All right. One major concern for a lot of our listeners was sidewalks. Mm-hmm. And why don't we listen to those questions after a quick break? All right. Sure. We are speaking with Denver's new pedestrian planner. That's David Pulsifer. Uh, he's the first person, as I said, to have that job. And we'll continue the discussion after a break on Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm walking. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Morner, and let's return to our conversation with Denver's first pedestrian planner. That's David Pulsifer. I think he rode his bike to the studio today. Is that right? I did. Okay. We invited listeners to ask you questions, and David Rapp of Denver wonders, why must pedestrians push buttons to get a walk signal to cross, for example, Colfax Avenue? Uh, At Lafayette and Colfax, pedestrians wait up to 100 seconds to cross after pushing the button. He goes on, why don't traffic engineers plan for the ubiquitous pedestrian as they do the ubiquitous car? And I suppose by way of contrast, you don't push a button to get a green signal at a light when you're in a car, but you you have to make a request if you're a pedestrian. I suppose that says something about an intersection. I think I think so, and um, that's something we definitely hope to address at in the, through the Denver Moves pedestrian plan is to identify locations where it's not necessary. We're just going to give the that signal the signal phase to the pedestrian, no matter if a, a pedestrian is there or not. And what is the benefit of that? Because I can imagine the driver thinking, "Why is this changing? There's no one here." Uh, well, the benefit is uh, is that um, you no matter sometimes you miss the 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 phase and or sometimes you're not paying attention. A pedestrian could be there or have limited ability to get to the button in time. Sometimes even I I don't have the ability when I'm just trying to wrangle my stroller with children, and so then I'm supposed to wait an entire another cycle. So it 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 eliminates that. It makes it a just an easier, more intuitive experience for a pedestrian. All right. So you think we will see more of those sort of automatic pedestrian crossings in the city? Absolutely. Okay. Um, Well, that was, you answered that very quickly. Let's go to Jessica McGee of Denver, who emailed us. She was recently at a new coffee shop in Rhino. It's the River North neighborhood. Quote, I just left a coffee shop and I was teetering between cracked pavement and dirt and dodging oncoming cars. For context, Rhino is an industrial area that's redeveloping, never really intended for pedestrians mm. in the beginning. Will that change? Will these places in Denver whose complexion is changing uh, get the sidewalks uh, to keep up? Absolutely. So that's uh, something that we are looking at right now with the uh, Denver Moves Pedestrians and Trails Plan. We are looking at a methodology to analyze all of the gaps in the network, and we're going to go and identify the ones that are the most needful and using various criteria 
or crash history, pedestrian volumes, adjacent land uses, so that we can uh, target and make um, the most the best decision for installing new crosswalks where people need them the most. How do you make sure that doesn't happen just in wealthy neighborhoods? Yeah, so part of the um, prioritization model we're using also factors uh, geographic equity as well. So we'll be dividing the city into quadrants and um, we'll be making sure that we install sidewalks uh, throughout the city in an equitable manner. That's what uh, Angel Lundin Bond of Westminster was concerned about, that low-income and minority neighborhoods be represented in these plans. And you say that will happen simply because there will be some kind of equal distribution, I guess? Yeah, and a geographic uh, equal distribution. And that's really important to consider as well because um, for many people, they can choose to walk and or choose to bike or choose to take transit, but we shouldn't um, forget the people that are are pedestrians by not by choice, but they're compelled to. They have no other option. And so we need to accommodate them just as we accommodate people with cars. Right. Those who are walking not because it's a luxury, but a necessity. Right. Streets Blog Denver publishes news and commentary about safe streets, effective transit, walkable development. They noted that Denver's 2017 proposed budget from the mayor has reserved $2.5 million dollars for sidewalk repair and construction. That's next to city property, so libraries and parks, because homeowners are responsible in large part for sidewalks that are in front of their own residences. But uh, Streets Blog adds, that's a really small amount compared to the $475 million needed for a complete system of city sidewalks. It's one thing to say you're committed to sidewalks. It's another thing to put the bucks there. Is this city committing enough money to improving conditions for pedestrians? Well, I will say that um, it's a it's a good start. Uh, we obviously need more, and Streetsbog is, is correct. There is a lot of work to be done, but I've worked for cities and worked in places where there was no budget, and it was... Uh, ne- a nebulous concept. Well, no we'll, budget for sidewalks. There was no budget for pedestrian or bicycle infrastructure. It was just sort of a nebulous. Well, we'll shift things around if we can get to it. And so I will say that a dedicated budget that is just for sidewalks is a good start, and it's better than I've seen in other places. Even if it's just two and a half million dollars out of what are several hundred million dollars of, of need potentially. Uh, yeah, I would say that uh, having money that's just uh, just ours to work with is is certainly better than not having any and to beg for scraps and to try to use un, unused funds from uh, other that has been dedicated elsewhere. To that question of sidewalks in front of people's homes, that they are primarily responsible for that, correct? That's correct. Yeah, is that true in every city? No, other other cities um, take. Res- take some responsibility for um, maintenance or, um, you know, a snow, you know, snow plowing, other things like that. And to what extent do you think that model uh, in which private citizens play a role affects the quality of sidewalks and affects the pedestrian experience? Because it occurs to me in some ways that the, the city can only do so much then. Sure. You know, that that's a, a really interesting question. I mean, I think in, it's uh, in some neighborhoods, you know, there's a, definitely an element of pride, but also financial means where right. they have the ability to take care of the sidewalk. And then um, we, but then you find in other areas where it's a, a significant financial burden for them to maintain and take care of their sidewalk. So you, I think with economics, you see a disparity in quality. And so 
can a pedestrian plan only go so far in terms of a city's influence? I think I think uh, the pedestrian plan will give us the framework to establish long-term success. I th- the conversation on private for private versus public uh, funding and maintenance is an ongoing conversation, and I know that the city council is looking at that. So we will, um, you know, obviously work with them and try to move the conversation forward. One critical question is whether to make the 16th Street Mall, which runs through downtown Denver wholly pedestrian. Mm-hmm. That, that's at least a consideration. And to move the buses that travel down it to adjacent streets. Do you have a position on that? I, you know, I haven't really, I haven't looked at it from a critical lens yet. I will say that pedestrian street, streets like maybe Pearl Street in Denver or in Boulder, in Boulder for, huh? for a certain, to a certain extent, are really great places. And when you think of all of the great places in the world, our great cities like Paris or Barcelona, you think of pedestrians moving freely and interacting and having the that that ability to uh, that freedom. And I think that could be something that Denver could be a landmark pedestrian institution that you know that starts the conversation of we value pedestrians, we value safety, and we value a livable, sustainable future. So you you think that has a lot of promise. I think so. I think yeah, the promise of a pedestrian plazas are uh, really exciting and should definitely be uh, explored. Okay, why don't we wrap up with uh, this? If you improve the pedestrian experience, do you necessarily improve the biking experience as well, or do you see the roads as really divided into kind of three users: automobiles, cyclists, pedestrians? Well, I think there's certainly some overlap between uh, the amenities that pedestrians and bicyclists want in a road and uh, distributing uh, road space for them. When you take a road space from cars, you can give it to bicyclists and pedestrians, and that can have uh, positive benefits for both. I think that bicyclists in general will have an improved environment when we improve pedestrian infrastructure. And yet, I've had that experience of being a pedestrian, feeling run down by a bike as well. Absolutely. So I think that's why you also have to accommodate uh, bicyclists as well, so they feel safe and comfortable. Um, And so so there is that, that division, and people don't feel like they have anyone breathing down their neck. Thanks for speaking with us. Nice to meet you. Thanks so much for having me. David Pulsifer is Denver's first full time pedestrian planner. If there's more you'd like to know, email us, news at cpr.org, news at cpr.org, or tweet at Colorado Matters, and we'll keep the conversation going. Just ahead, the new head of Colorado Christian University on the school's role in faith and politics. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A private Christian university west of Denver is a national center for conservative thought. Colorado Christian University was led by former U.S. Senator Bill Armstrong for the last decade until his death in July. During his tenure, enrollment grew by nearly 250 percent, according to the school. Armstrong's successor is Donald Sweeting, who has a very different background. He's a pastor and academic, rather than a politician. Sweeting is here to talk about the future of Colorado Christian University. And a welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. Great to be with you today. Before this, you served as president of the Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida, for about six years. The, academics, that's right. Yeah, academics yeah. there included uh, divinity, theology, biblical studies, and uh, Colorado Christian University has a much broader range of academics, 
from yes, account, accounting and political science to the liberal arts. So two different universities for sure. I'm going to say that you're a, a longtime trustee of CCU, though. What about the, right. the job here appealed to you? Oh, you know, I love the breadth of a university that it deals with all kinds of subjects and all kinds of issues. And yet it's still CCU still has a a, a Christian center. So uh, a seminary is is pretty much professionally changing, uh, uh, training counselors and pastors and people going into missions and education. But uh, at CCU as a university, you're training people going into arts and sciences as, as well. Some will be pastors and some some will be counselors as well. Yeah, what does it mean to, um, I don't know, a, a future accountant that they go to a faith-based school like CCU? That's a great question because uh, my son, third son, went to CCU and he is an accountant. Uh, okay. So he was attracted to the school because of uh, oh, my it's basketball program, it, that it was a Christian university, that they had a core uh, training in Christian studies, but that he could also study one of his passions, uh, which was business and accounting. So he thought that's the place for me. And so it's the ability to meld, in a way, the religious, the faith, and the professional, would you say? Yeah. I mean, the center of Christian education is Christ, the living word, who um, um, in his light, uh, we believe, you know, sheds light on everything, and he inspires words, and, and uh, that's the driving motive. But the vision of a, of a university, in the West anyway, and, and most of them were Christian at the beginning, was that Christ's light illumines everything, all kinds of subjects, and it's all related to the center in some way. So we talk about a Christ-centered education that uh, is integrated. That, that's our aspiration, but that ultimately uh, serves people. Colorado Christian University not only teaches a wider variety of subjects than your previous school, it also has a, a really strong political voice. Senator Armstrong helped develop the university's conservative think tank, the Centennial Institute. It hosts the annual Western Conservative Summit, where Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump gave the keynote speech earlier this year. How much of that political influence do you plan to maintain? <laughs> well, of course, you know, Bill was a uh, Bill's a, a wonderful man, a friend, and he's dearly missed. Um, but he was a politician, a career politician and a businessman. And uh, I am a pastor educator. Uh, so so we're very different people in, in that way. But we we have the same um, convictional commitments uh, as a Christian and a conservative. And uh, I believe, you know, politics isn't everything. It's it's important, but it's one sphere of life. And it's downstream of culture, and and there are other spheres that are equally important, and that a university can can serve in all these different spheres. So, as far as the Centennial Institute goes, it's a well. Most universities have some kind of institute or think tank, so we're not unusual in that, uh, and uh, it uh, helps us be exposed to issues and debate issues and think through issues. Uh, and it has yes sponsored the uh, Western Conservative Summit. Um, which I was at this summer, and uh, we will continue to do that. So do you hear the political voice of the university being uh, as loud, less loud, uh, less well, vocal? I think, uh, I think that the, the focus of the university has always been um, uh, and will remain. Its, its mission is to train students in all the professions for their callings, in in a way that hopefully is uh, Christ-centered and uh, that uh, helps students think through things from a Christian 
uh, perspective. And, you know, politics, it cannot dominate a university, any university, but it's, a, it's an important sphere. And I think that the connection between um, Christianity and for me being a conservative is you believe that uh, there's something above us. There's there's some transcendent. Uh, I would put it this way: there's a God who is there, who has uh, revealed Himself, and there are moral truths and laws that that should regulate our lives. Uh, therefore, liberty is wonderful. It's a gift, but it should be an ordered liberty. Now, those are themes that conservatives will articulate too. But um, I, I would do it um, starting from a Christian vision and. CCU, after all, has been around for 102 years, started as a Bible institute, and uh, that's what has driven it through the years. All right. But you do see its political role continuing, at the very least, through the Centennial Institute. I hope it has a, I, I hope it has a good constructive social and political and cultural influence. I hope it has a good influence on the churches and on businesses. So I see that as one of its, one of its roles. The university has taken public stances on some political and cultural issues, abortion, marriage, transgender bathroom access. On that latter topic, the U.S. Department of Education has said that transgender students are protected from discrimination under Title IX. And CCU is more than one of more than 200 religious-based colleges that applied for an exemption from that. Right. Was CCU right to do so in your mind? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, it's not just evangelical Christians who um, have. Uh, I mean, we're driven first of all by a, by a, a, a biblical vision where we believe, and this is no surprise. I mean, we've been this way for uh, many years, and Christianity has always affirmed this: that you know, um, marriage is between a man and a woman. Sex is for marriage, and God created us according to the Bible as men and and women. So. We don't hate anybody. We we want to be gracious, but we have a theological vision that informs uh, our uh, ethos in school, just like uh, many other schools do, and not just evangelical schools. Roman Catholic schools, um, uh, Orthodox Jews, Muslims would they would say, "Hey, we we want to be who we are," uh, but uh, um, so we're all trying to you know navigate these new waters. You say the belief is that God created man and woman. Uh, so in, in right. your mind, people who are transgender are not created in the eyes of God? No, they are created in, in the image of God. Everyone is, and they're created, they're born into this world, male and female, and we all wrestle with our sexuality and sexual brokenness and issues uh, and try to find out uh, you know, what's right and, and who we are. So everyone goes through that in different ways. But we think there, there's a design that God graciously designed us for a purpose and that we flourish as human beings when we live within his de design. Um, You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Donald Sweeting. He succeeds Bill Armstrong as president of Colorado Christian University in Lakewood, and he starts next month. Uh, let's, let's explore your personal faith. Um, so you grew up in a religious home, I understand, which, interestingly, for a lot of people, does not lead to uh, necessarily a faith-based life. How, how did it for you? Uh, I wonder if there was a moment you realized, uh, you know, outside of whatever teachings you heard in the home, that uh, mm. this was the life you, you wanted to lead. Yeah. Uh, I had loving parents, and um, I'm thankful for that. Um, they, they were both uh, committed Christians, but they, they loved us and they 
encouraged me to develop my gifts. And for that, I'll, I'll ever be grateful. Um, but I, I went away from home for a long time. And it was in those years at universities and everything that I wrestled with different questions and what I believe and why. And it was in uh, early college, late high school that I came to a, a crisis of faith and said, so, you know, wh- what am I, what do I believe? What do I affirm with my life? And that's when I made a commitment to be um, a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ. Would you say more about what the crisis was? Oh, the crisis was, you know, is my parents' faith my faith? Do I believe it just because they do? Uh, what, uh, you know, is there really a God? Is Jesus the Son of God? Did he really raise from from the dead? Is the Bible really true? You know, all these these good questions that every, every Christian, and I hope every person, will wrestle through. And I came out of the end of that just saying, I believe it's true. In fact, it's true. It's changed my life. And now I look back and I can see how it's really changed my family and lifted lifted our family. Um, so, and I hear as a pastor, I've heard the same theme over and over again, you know, about how Christ takes the broken pieces of our lives and pulls them back together and puts us on a new path. Colorado Christian University is an interdenominational Christian college, and according to its website, more than 60 different denominations are represented in the student body. You practice Reformed theology. Do I have that right? I, I'm at a Reformed seminary, yes. Yeah. Uh, briefly, what, what is that, and, and is it something you hope to bring to CCU? Well, Reformed, uh, theolo- Reformed Christianity is really, a, uh, a, you think of that as the species and evangelical as the genus. So it's a, it's a variation of evangelical Christianity that um, is, goes back to the Reformation and the belief in that we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and uh, it believes in the authority of the Scriptures. Now, many evangelicals, most evangelicals do as well, but um, uh, a lot of the Reformed churches, they'd be Presbyterian, which is what I am, um, but I happen to be an evangelical Presbyterian. So right. it's, uh, it, there's, there are overlaps, if you can hear them. And is that um, a, a new perspective at CCU or what? Well, obviously, Christianity is not a new perspective, but <laughs> right. as, as, as a Reformed uh, person, the, the vision of uh, Reformed Christianity is that Christ is Lord and his lordship relates to every area of life. And I think that vision fits a university really well. And I, in fact, I think that a lot of the evangelical world has slowly been buying into that vision that that's true. If Jesus is Lord, then everything matters and everything uh, relates to him in some way. Hence, we, we are interested in an integrated Christian education. The cost of college, I think, is on the minds of many folks in the U.S. right now. CCU's annual tuition is nearly $29,000. That compares to about 33000 at Regis University in Denver, more than 46000 at Pepperdine outside of Los Angeles. Uh, and both of those are private faith-based colleges. How much thought have you given to that as you prepare to take on this role at CCU? Well, as a parent with four kids, believe me, I've given on a lot of thoughts. So. Uh, and now, um, even as a seminary uh, president, I, I've given it thought, and we've thought of creative ways where students can afford education um, uh, through partnerships with, with churches, um, through um, condensing programs or or overlapping programs, or CCU has a wonderful dual partnership program that uh, helps uh, parents in a lot of schools save money. So 
there's, we all need to do a lot of creative thinking in this area because of the high cost. But, but as you know, studies still come out saying, look, even though uh, university education is expensive, in the course of your life, it, is, it still brings immeasurable uh, benefits to you, especially financial benefits, but not exclusively. And so um, it still is worth it. Thanks so much for speaking with us, Don. Great to be with you, Ryan. Thanks. Donald Sweeting starts as president of Colorado Christian University in Lakewood October 3rd. As we said, he succeeds the late U.S. Senator Bill Armstrong. And we'll be right back with a problem that's underdiagnosed in young people with Down syndrome. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It was a big day for Maya Yeager in 2012 when she gave the keynote address at a big church youth event. Yeager lives in Boulder and has Down syndrome. God wants all of us to have peace in our lives. Even though we have really serious conditions in different areas around the world. (sighs) Wow. Uh, my legs are like tingling. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. About a year later, Jaeger's enthusiasm for life began to fade. She was diagnosed with a condition known as regression. Jaeger began to backslide. She spoke less to others and more out loud to herself. Jaeger, who's now 23, was treated at the C Center for Down Syndrome at Children's Hospital Colorado. The center has seen an increase in the number of young people with regression. With me is Jaeger's mother, that's Linda Roan of Boulder, and Lena Patel, the C Center's Director of Psychology. And ladies, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks so much for being with us. Linda, tell me more about what regression looked like for Maya. Well, it started out really just bizarre. She just started, she came home, she went away to a college program for people with disabilities, and she came home for Thanksgiving, and we noticed she just was more into herself, wouldn't respond to a question readily. She would talk to herself under her breath and just didn't seem to be her bubbly self. Um, And then as time went on, it just got worse and worse and worse. And it was like the world just faded away around her. And she was so internally focused in her head, just somewhere far, far away. Probably the opposite of what you expected. In other words, if she had gone away to a college program, you might have thought she would come back uh, as as vocal and engaging and interactive as ever. Exactly. Uh Uh-huh. And so this was a, a real surprise. And it, is this common, Lena, in young people, especially, I think, with Down syndrome? It's not necessarily common, but we are definitely seeing it more and more um, impacting our individuals with Down syndrome. Um, and in the grander s- scheme, you know, regression is a small portion of what we see in as far as general mental health um, concerns, too. In those with Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. And do you think you're seeing more of it because it has gone, until now, undiagnosed? Um, That's a really good question. 
I think that what has actually happened is is we're we're getting um, more and more knowledgeable about looking for the signs and symptoms of it. Um, you know, this isn't a new phenomenon with regard to uh, people talking about it. It's just that it's evolved as far as what um, people are attributing it to. So, you know, um, many, many decades ago, it was really thought to be early onset Alzheimer's. Um, and so there wasn't really a lot of attention given to, is this something that's treatable? Is this something that, you know, we can can um, help. Um, and so it was kind of maybe something that we just didn't know was was treatable or something that we could really focus on. It's helpful to understand that there's a really strong link between Down syndrome and Alzheimer's. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. And so the suspicion was, oh, this is just a version of that. This is not some new separate thing. Exactly. Did you notice anything about the timing of the regression, Linda, that perhaps there was a trigger in Maya's life that that could have led to this? Well, yes. I mean, moving away from home to another state was certainly something huge for any uh, young adult. But for a person with Down syndrome, you can imagine. Um, We thought that the supports were available there, and we thought she was doing quite well there. That's what everyone said in our talking to her on the phone and visiting her, what it looked like. But yes, the stress of going to college um, other stresses in the environment that we might not have known about. But yes, uh, we we really felt that it was a stressful situation that led her to this in some way. And so what is regression and, and can it be triggered from outside events? Because I guess what you're saying very fundamentally, Lena, is that it's not uh, it's not Alzheimer's. It's not a form of dementia. No, Um you know, I, I think it's still not understood very well um, it, within the Down syndrome community. Professionals are definitely talking about it more and definitely trying to understand it more. And as a psychologist, my brain definitely goes to psychosocial stressors. Um, people have wondered, is there a medical etiology to it? And really, there isn't anything that is um, really pronounced that we've said like, oh, they have, um, you know, um, an infection or they have um, a tumor or something that really could cause that you know, there. It's not like a blood test would correct. reveal something. There's nothing mm-hmm. that that's been revealed. But in all of the cases that we've treated at the C Center for Down Syndrome, um, really. I, I and maybe because I'm looking for it, but there's always been some sort of um, psychosocial stressor, and typically it seems like it's related to a decrease in structure or a decrease in level of support, like a transition to high school, for example, where you know um, our individuals with Down syndrome are met with a lot of demands, but not necessarily the appropriate supports to be able to um, do uh, the things that they were able to do, say, in middle school or in elementary school. Okay, so um, Lin- Linda's suspicion that it's related to what was going on in Maya's life, you're you're saying is probably a good one, a good Mm -hmm. instinct. And so what does treatment look like? And uh, I suppose I'd I'd like very much to know how Maya is doing as a result of it. So treatment really... Within, again, the professional community, what we've seen has been the most helpful has been psychiatric medications and increasing um, structural supports. So really um, keeping kids engaged, keeping them, you know, um, active in their community, really preventing them from withdrawing even more. Um, A lot of our kiddos don't realize that they're spending a lot of time by themselves talking to themselves or really disconnected from the world. So, Which which is understandable in a mm -hmm. new environment where you're trying to make friends and that could be difficult. Absolutely. So increased support is a, a big piece in and 
when typically um, our kiddos are treated with psychiatric medications. There's also been um, treatment with electroconvulsive therapy, which um, sounds a little scary, but no. um, definitely uh, have seen some uh, positive effects with that as well. What is that therapy, just briefly? Um, so it's basically, I mean, Linda would be able to share share um, more specifically what it looks like uh, in a session, but typically what it is is kind of a little mini shock to your brain, um, almost like resetting it. And the the crazy thing is, is we also don't understand why that works. Okay, <laughs> there's a lot that's misunderstood uh, or or not understood, I suppose. Right. And Linda, uh, how how is Maya? And uh, I'd love to have you share what treatment looked like. Um, Maya right now is doing fabulously. She's working. She's having a good life. She's happy. Uh, when she when she got sick, uh, the first time we were very lucky to get in with Dr. Le- Dr. Patel at uh, the C Center right away with the regression with yeah. the re- with the regression. And over the course of about eighteen months uh, with Dr. Patel at the helm, we just did a whole lot of things. And it was what really what Dr. Patel was saying. It was about getting Maya interested in the outside world, something to pull her out of herself, I think is really what ultimately worked. We also um, saw an excellent uh, psychiatrist who was also with the C-Center and meds helped. And then at about the 18-month mark, Maya was fully, fully back to her normal self, got a job, was doing great. And then, but the story doesn't end there. Then she relapsed. She regressed again um, at about the two-year anniversary of the first regression. Hmm. And we started doing all those things that we knew had worked the first time again. But unfortunately, they didn't work the second time around. And so because of the C-Center and because of their deep knowledge of the research, they knew that another treatment had been tried with other young adults in a similar situation in other places in the country. And it was what? Electric convulsive therapy. It was the ECT. Yes. All right. And so with a lot of thought, we gave it a try. And we started March 2nd of this year. And by mid-April, Maya was doing great. We're talking about something that manifests in some young people with Down syndrome, a condition known as regression, and the efforts at the C Center for Down Syndrome in Denver to treat this condition. And I I think that there's a perception that people with Down syndrome are happy and loving. And and perhaps this is because of a media portrayal. Perhaps there's a, a shred fundamentally of truth to that. But you don't hear as a result about mental illness or mental conditions in those with Down syndrome. Um, Let's zoom back just a little bit, Lena, and talk about mental illness in the Down syndrome community in in general. Mm -hmm. Do do you think that it's um, flying under the radar to some extent? Absolutely. It is definitely underdiagnosed because a lot of times the things that um, we see symptom-wise really people attribute to having Down syndrome. And so we don't we don't think of it as, oh, you know what, you can have Down syndrome and you can still have um, a mental health issue um, in addition to that. So, you know, and the symptoms might look a little different. So depression in a young adult 
um, you know, with Down syndrome might look like agitation or self-talk, which self-talk is not uncommon in um, people with Down syndrome. It's actually a very healthy way of coping with, um, you know, the world moving really fast. Um, but if it becomes so much that, you know, a person is, is completely withdrawn, that's something that we want to really look at more as a mental health issue. And it's actually probably closer to double what we would expect in the general population. Double in those with Down syndrome than in the general mm-hmm. population. Yes. Goodness. Yeah. And I suspect there's all kinds of questions you have about why that would be and maybe a dearth of answers or do you know why? Yeah. I mean, uh, a big part of it is, is you have to think about some of the challenges that are that our individuals with Down syndrome face, communication challenges. So a lot of times our, our um, children really have a desire to want to engage with the world but don't have a means of, of being able to communicate. So that's a, a really big one. And one can imagine that that leads to perhaps depression, for instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We typically see more um, externalized behaviors or challenges, um, emotionally impulsivity, sometimes mood lability, things like that in younger kids. Um, but depression definitely gets missed um, in young adults and um, with Down syndrome. Thanks to both of you for shedding some light on this for us. Thank you. Thank you. So we heard uh, about Linda Roan's daughter, Maya, who has Down syndrome and was treated for a condition known as regression. And uh, taking part in that treatment in large part was Lena Patel, director of psychology for the C Center for Down Syndrome in Denver. And you can see a video of Maya speaking at that 2012 youth conference at CPRnews.org. The number of people arrested driving while under the influence of marijuana is up by 25 percent so far this year. Some defense attorneys say authorities are charging innocent drivers. CPR's Ben Marcus reports that new research may have thrown Colorado's marijuana DUI law into question. On a cold September night two years ago, Abby McLean was driving home from a late dinner with a friend when she noticed a DUI checkpoint. I haven't drank or smoked anything, so I was like... Let's go through the checkpoint. Still, the cop at the checkpoint tells her he smells marijuana, that her eyes are bloodshot. Eventually, he whips out handcuffs, and McLean freaks. Like, massive panic attack, and oh my god, I have babies at home, I need to get home, I can't go to jail. She insists that she was not high, but a blood test later revealed that she had five times the legal limit of THC in her bloodstream. THC is the mind-altering compound in pot. Open and shut case, right? Not so fast, says her attorney, Nadav Ashner. In his view, Colorado's pot DUI limit doesn't mean anything. It's bizarre, it makes no sense, and it has no basis in science. His client, Abby McLean, admits that she's a frequent marijuana user, like up to five times a day. She says it helps her anxiety, depression, and migraines. And Ashner says there's research to suggest that frequent and heavy users can have elevated THC levels up to 12 hours and longer after smoking. Even the state's experts will say that number alone is something, but generally not enough. And we really hammered that home. And that worked, kind of. Ashner got a hung jury and pleaded McLean to a lesser offense. Colorado's marijuana DUI law is modeled on the one for alcohol. It sets a number at which point someone is too intoxicated to drive. And that's a problem. Tom Marcotte runs the Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research at the University of California, San Diego. Unlike alcohol, which has a generally linear relationship between the amount of alcohol you consume, your breath alcohol contents, and driving performance, uh, the THC route of metabolism is very different meaning blood and breath tests, are not a good measure of marijuana intoxication. AAA released a study this spring backing that up, even saying states should wait to set marijuana impairment limits until the science improves. 
Denver District Attorney Mitch Morrissey says that doesn't mean Colorado should throw out its THC limit, which is five nanograms per milliliter of blood. He says that may not be perfect, but it gives juries another piece of evidence to consider at trial. I think that putting in a nanogram level makes sense. I can't tell you what level it should be. I don't think Colorado's is right. I don't think it should be as high as it is. I think it should be lower. Morrissey remembers trying alcohol DUI cases as a young prosecutor. The science, he says, wasn't settled then either. And the blood alcohol standard was about twice as high as it is now, and it took years for it to be lowered. Right, and I think that has to do with better testing, better technology. Morrissey says testing and technology will get better for marijuana, too. DUI defense attorney Jay Tiftikshin says Colorado's marijuana law does allow a driver to challenge the results of the test, like the limit shouldn't apply to them if they're a heavy user. But he says not everyone can spend the resources to make that case in court. And innocent people are and will continue to be convicted based on that. That's unconstitutional. He says even the U.S. Department of Transportation acknowledges that measuring THC in the body is a poor indicator of intoxication. But that leaves frequent marijuana users like Abby McLean scared to drive for fear of another failed blood test. I haven't gone out really since then because I'm paranoid to run into the same surprise. Uh Uh-oh, there's a DUI checkpoint. Which could end up costing her thousands of dollars more in attorney fees to again try to convince a jury she was actually sober. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters for today. You can keep in touch with us through Twitter at Colorado Matters or Facebook CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us on Colorado Public Radio.